No worries, David. No worries. Do you guys know David running sound? He's so good. Let's give David a round of applause. Sorry, not sound. Front of house engineer. Man, wasn't worship good today? That was uh, that was next level. I gotta be careful because I'll lose my voice, and then I'll just be like signing up here, which I don't know how to sign, so it'll be a really long time. Uh, I was up at North OC last week, and there was a gal on the team who uh, she does sign language like professionally, you know. And so I asked ask her like, "Do you ever do concerts?" She goes, "That's everyone's first question." Because have you seen like the YouTube videos where like the sign language is like they're doing sign for like Cardi B or something, and it's just absolutely hilarious because they're really getting into it. Uh, so yeah. She's like, I'm glad it's not on video anywhere. It's like, that you know of, that you know of. Uh, but yeah, hey, one, one, one point of clarification for the Angels game, you have to get a ticket, okay? You have to get a ticket. I, I, I assume you know that. Uh, we have like 10 left, but we can always get more. Uh, but the closer we get, the harder they're going to get to uh, be to get. So if you don't have a ticket and you want to go to the Angels game, uh, I don't even know who the Angels are playing. It doesn't matter. It's a Star Wars night. It's going to be fun. Uh, is it the Royals? There you go. So the Royals. Uh, like no one cares. It's like I'm go actually going to be in Kansas City with some friends here uh, in the next few months, and I'm like, can we get get into the Royals game? He's like, you can go to AMC uh, for uh, for less or for more money than it's than going to a Royals game right now. It's like, yes, well, no problem going there. So, anyways, uh, if you want to get, I don't know why I told you that. If you want to go to the game, uh, just go to the website and you can uh, get tickets there. We tailgate and we'll have a good time. Uh, well, hey, uh, today is uh, we're we're it's called Great Expectations, actually. We spoke this last week uh, at the nor- and up in North OC, up in Anaheim, and a couple of team members were like, man, that's such a now message. Uh, we spoke this a while ago, taught this a while ago here, uh, but man, so many guys are new, and for all of us, including me, it's a great reminder for who we are as a church. And so we're going to go through the, the book of Acts and go through a few key verses throughout the book of Acts, and it gives like a summary. We'll, we'll talk about it, but it's a super important, uh, uh, kind of a, a reminder for all of us uh, that call ourselves a church. So the reality is this. The reason why it's, why it's called great expectations is all of us have had expectations that weren't met, right? Disappointment uh, with people, with churches, right? And since those expectations weren't met, we uh, have hurt or disappointment. And the reality is we, we want to elevate the conversation. I'm not, I'm not justifying anything that happened, uh, whether it be a church hurt or an employer or employee or a neighbor or whatever, uh, but we want to elevate the conversation because the reality is people will let you down. They will. I don't know if you, you know, if, if, if you're like, well, no one will ever let me down. Then that means you're very young or you've led a very sheltered life. You, people will let you down. Of course they will. Your spouse will let you down. Mine never has, thank God. I mean, some of you guys' spouses uh, will let you down. Your church will let you down. I'm sure we've let you down at some level. Some of you guys, we probably let you down. You left the church. You came back, and, you know, we're really glad you're back. But we, not intentionally, but I'm sure we let you down. And some of you guys are here uh, because maybe you had a church experience uh, in the past that where a church has let you down. Your, your kids maybe have let you down, your coach, your boss, your employer, your employees— have all let you down. And the reality is, you've let people down too, haven't you? Maybe today you've let people down, right? Maybe you've let yourself down. And there's this preconceived idea of what the church is supposed to be. This idea of like the church is a building or the church is a, a certain preacher, right? Some people are like, I don't know, uh, you know, the name of the church, but oh, that's that pastor's church, right? So you know a church by the name of a certain pastor or a certain preacher. But the original word for the idea of church wasn't based on a building. It wasn't based on a logo or a bunch of followers on Instagram. The original word for church was ecclesia, 
ecclesia, which essentially d- the defined means an assembly, a gathering, a body of faithful people. Yes, amen. So the church is not meant to be a building. A building isn't bad any more than your family is a house. House is important, but it's not your family. The church is us. It's us. We're a gathering. So what did God have in mind for us at the beginning? Because there's nothing in Scripture, I don't know if you realize this, the stuff that we, we argue about many times in churches, the things that split churches, have nothing to do many times with Scripture. A lot of times what, what, you know, what, what splits churches is the style of song or style of seating or the color of the carpet or you know, whatever. There's nothing in Scripture that says, you know, thus saith the Lord, you shall sing three fast songs, one slow song, and then someone will host and give announcements for things going on and potluck happening, and then there'll be a 32-minute teaching, and then we'll have a dismissal and an offering. There's nothing like that, right? The minimum ecclesiology, the minimum, the kind of makeup of a church is a body of believers that want to authentically do what Jesus asked them to do. This is what we believe. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the book of Acts. And more specifically, we're going to look at the actions of the first people that Jesus put into leadership. What did they do? What did they prioritize? When they had the baton for a short season, what did they say? What did they say? And then turns, what, what are we supposed to prioritize? What are we supposed to focus on as a church? So they knew that what they would say and what they would do would be recorded and passed down. And throughout history, that baton has been passed down and passed down and passed down. And huge seasons of time, even if you're a history buff, huge seasons of time are summarized in a few ideas. Like the church of the 16th century was about this. Really? A hundred years about this or a thousand years about this, right? So now the baton is passed down to you. Now the baton is passed down to me. And for a short season, we have the baton as voice church. The question is, what are we going to do with it? What are they going to say about us? What are we going to do? What are we going to prioritize? So we're going to look at the priorities of the first century church and what they used to make their decisions. We're going to look at some verses, and at the end of the teaching, I'm going to ask you the same questions I'm going to ask you, ask you right now. First question is this. Not, hey, did the church exceed your expectations or did the church meet your expectations? That's not the question that we're asking. The question is this. Are you the church? Are you the church that you expected the church to be? Are you the church that you expected the church to be? And the second question is this. If we are the church, what does God expect of us? If we're the church, what does God expect of us? So let's dive in. Acts chapter 1. Uh, verse 8. Some of you guys may have heard this. It says, but when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you'll receive power and will tell people about me everywhere. The other, the other translations say, you'll be my witness. You'll be my ambassador. In other words, the Holy Spirit's job is not to give us goosebumps during worship. Right? You would, some, some people in some theological circles, you would, you would think that the Holy Spirit came so we can have really long extended periods of worship. And that's not it. Some of the people that are most Holy Spirit- focused people I know are some of the most least evangelistic people I know, right? The most inward-centered people I know. So here's what this says. The Holy Spirit's main purpose is to give you power to represent Jesus. And if you're going, why do I need the Holy Spirit's power? Have you seen yourself lately? Have you met yourself lately, right? I don't know about you, but I need a lot of help. I read what Jesus is like. I read the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and I'm like, nope, 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 nope. I fall short in so many of these areas. 
Ask my family. They'll tell you in, in technicolor how I fall short, right? So it says, uh, you see power and will tell people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he tells me to go to four different places. First, Jerusalem. See, most of these guys and gals are from Galilee, about a couple days journey up north. And so Jerusalem represents a couple things. It, it, to them, it's, like, it, it's almost like if you live in upstate New York, right? And then this is like, go reach everyone in New York City. It's like, okay. We're like country bumpkins compared to those folks. They don't even listen to us. But okay, walk into your fears. Walk into your insecurities, right? Feel the fear and do it anyways. This is what Jesus, go, go, go to Jerusalem first. Other thing Jerusalem represented was, do you know where they were at currently when Jesus was speaking to them? Jerusalem. So he's saying, hey, instead, before focusing on there, the next thing you're going to do, focus on where your feet are right now. Where does God have you right now? I can't say how many people I've talked to that said, oh, I'm going to be generous one day. When I start making more money, I'll be generous. When I start having more time, I'll be generous with my time. It's like, okay, what about now? Now, are you living like Jesus where you're at right now? Well, here's why it's hard where I'm at. Sure, but you can only do what, with, what you, with the tools you have and the time you have where you currently are right now. God doesn't care about your future faithfulness anymore than he cares about your past faithfulness. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you want to be my disciple, you must what? Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me today, daily. Some people are living so much. I, I would talk, I was so faithful 30 years ago, I helped build this. Cool. What about today? What about today? Because it doesn't matter if you were faithful 30 years ago, but you're a jerk today. So, are you following Jesus today? So Jesus goes, start in Jerusalem. Start with your actually at. Do that. With the job you have, with the neighbors you have, with the family you have, with the time you have, be faithful with that. And then go to the next thing. Here's the crazy thing about the future. It always will get here. It will get here, right? Just wait for it. But do what you can with what you have right now. Second place he says, go to Judea. Judea is the area surrounding Jerusalem. You're saying, hey, once you reach everyone in L.A., go ahead and reach everyone in Southern California. Right? Reach everyone in the area. When you're done with that, go to Samaria. We've talked about Samaria before. Samaria represents those people. Right? Samaria are the people that you don't bring a, a Samaritan home to mom. Right? Because, oh, dude, they don't vote like us. You know, what they, you know what news channel they watch? They don't think like us. They don't believe like us. And Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The people that you say are out, they're not out. I love them just as much as I love you, right? They're not less important than you because they think differently than you. And newsflash, you're wrong in a lot of areas too, right? So he says, go to Samaria. And then uh, the last one he says, when you're done with all that, go to the ends of the earth. Here's a crazy thing. Who's going to pay for all of this? If you think of yourself as a follower of Jesus in the first century, and you're like, you gave up everything and followed Jesus. You have nothing. There's no 401k plan. There was no pension. It was just follow Jesus. And Jesus goes, hey, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. How are we going to get there? I have so many questions, right? And what Jesus is saying is, hey, this faith we believe in is not for one tax bracket. It's not for one color. It's not for one demographic. It's not for one age group. It's for everyone. This is why Paul says later in Romans chapter 1, he says, it's the, it's the news I'm most proud to proclaim, this extraordinary message of God's powerful plan to rescue everyone who trusts him, starting with the Jews and then right on to everyone else. And outside of a couple of people in the room, you know, we're not Jewish, right? 
We're part of that everyone else. I am, right? So think about this. He sends them out with no money, no connections, nothing. It's ludicrous. These men and women just gave three years of their lives for him, and now he's telling them to go change the world. Impossible. Except for one thing. It worked. It worked, and we're here today because of it. Imagine Jesus telling them this, and then he ascends into heaven, right? And you got the rest of the apostles, the, the music dies away, the lights turn on, the band leaves, and it's just the, the disciples are all sitting there, 100, 100 plus of them going, I don't know, man. I don't, I got stuff I got to do. Can we just circle back in a month or two? It's not a good time for me right now, right? If they would have done that, we wouldn't be here today. I just keep thinking about, man, who, if we say no today, who's affected 2,000 years from now? There's always repercussions on the other side of your yes, on the other side of your no. So, aren't you thankful that disciples took Jesus up on a challenge that day? And what, was went, what, was, what, what they went on to do was written down in the book of Acts. And so if you open your Bibles or open your Bible app to Acts chapter 29, what you'll see is that there's no Acts chapter 29. All right? It ends with Acts chapter 28. Some of you guys are like, what does that really mean? So... <laughs> But it ends with Acts chapter one, and it's it's really it's almost it ends like like lost, like the, the TV show Lost, where it's like it's like, wait, that doesn't resolve anything. What <laughs> this is like the worst payoff ever for watching a series, right? This is how the book of Acts ends. It just ends. There was no like nice little bow at the end of this thing. Why? Because the idea is that the church continued, that there was no end. In a lot of ways that we are still writing Acts chapter 29 today. So the question is, question is, if the Bible were still being written today, if Acts chapter 29 were still being written today, are you living a life that God would write about? Are we a church that God would write about? Because here's the thing I believe God won't write about. Their worship team was so talented. Their branding was so cool. Their speaker would look like Asian Brad Pitt. <laughs> I mean, some things are true, but I don't think God would write about them. You know what I mean? So, anyways, just kidding. Maybe like 70-year-old Brad Pitt. All right. So here's how, how the Acts is broken up. Acts 1-8 is kind of an outline for the, kind of the whole thing and how the book is written. And then from time to time, there's like these summary verses uh, that kind of summarize everything that just happened. And we want to go through some of those summary verses and kind of pull some truth out of that. So the first verse is Acts chapter 2, verse 47. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter gives an amazing message. And then it, it ends with this in Acts chapter 2. It says, All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. So you can keep that verse up there. The church begins to explode. I want you to take note of something. Who added to the church? Who added to the church? Did it say is that it was, is this, they brought in a consultant and it was an incredible branding strategy? Or they had this haze or they had these moving lights or they had these great flyers that did everything. They brought in a guest speaker that everyone knew. Bieber came in, right? Brought Jesus culture to lead worship. No, it, it doesn't say that. It says the Lord added to added to the number. God. God. This is important because it takes a huge burden off of us. I mean, how many of you guys have held back from kind of telling a coworker or a friend about Jesus because you're afraid you're going to mess the whole thing up? Right? I have. And I'm like ordained. 
right? There's so many times I'm like, I don't know where they're at, you know? Jesus never says not to make any mistakes. We'll all make mistakes, right? There's a funny story about a woman's true story about a, a woman in a small group whose birthday was coming up, and her favorite verse was 1 John 4.18. And 1 John 4.18 is some of you guys' favorite verses as well, and it says that there's no fear in love because perfect fear casts out, no, per, there's no l- fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Yeah, it's one of my favorite verses, as you can tell. Uh, <laughs> perfect love drives out fear. Right? And she had gone through a lot of things, and so it was really important to her. She had a lot of regret and love, just cast out kind of the fear and insecurity in her life. So the small group is like, man, we're going to get 1 John 4.18 written on this cake for her, and they brought it to small group. The problem was the baker really wasn't familiar with the Bible, and so instead of putting 1 John 4.18, he put John 4.18. Honest mistake, totally different verse. So John 4.18 says, and he wrote it out on the, on the cake, the fact is you've had five husbands. <laughs> And the man you have now is not even your husband, okay? It's a little different than 1 John 4, 18, right? We all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Here's the deal. Jesus never said to not make mistakes, did he? Following Jesus is not about mistake avoidance. One of my favorite stories is a guy by the name of uh, Benjamin Zander. He's the, anybody know who Benjamin Zander is? He's the leader of the Boston Philharmonic. At least he was uh, before. I don't know what he's doing these days. Where are they now, Benjamin Zander? Uh, but uh, he leads the Boston Philharmonic, and he says one of the most uh, paralyzing things that keeps students from becoming great is not a lack of talent, but actually a fear of mistakes. That these individuals play at the highest level, some of the best musicians in the world, but they're so afraid of making mistakes, they play rigid, right? And so he says that he, this is his rule if you're part of the Boston Philharmonic, which I don't think any of us have played on. I played a few years of classical piano because I had to, and I'm Asian. Uh, so, uh, but I, yeah, thank you. Yes. A lot of you guys, you have, we share same pain. Uh, tennis, ping pong, piano, that's what we have to do. Uh, math and science, okay. Uh, <laughs> so, but what, uh, so what he trains his philharmonic to do is if you ever mess up, when their whole orchestra's playing, if you ever mess up, you have to stand up. You have to raise your hand. And if you see someone raising their hand, everyone has to stop playing. And you have to, when everyone stops and looks at you, you have to say, fascinating, fascinating. <laughs> Is that hilarious? And then you sit down and you start playing again. Dude, we as a church should always be raising our hand and saying, fascinating. Man, we did two services for Easter. Those were the wrong times to do uh, two services. Fascinating. Everything we say as a church is an experiment. This is an experiment. Like, so, man, we as a church should always be trying things. All, you, you as an individual should always be trying things. I'm not saying just try things willy-nilly. Think through it. Do the best you can. But realize that you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make calls that you are confident in the moment is right. And afterwards, you are confident it was the wrong call. And instead of like being embarrassed and making excuses, just own it and go, yeah, that was fascinating. Boy, that didn't work, did it? Right? Just take the load off yourself. I tried to find hair, uh, the, the pictures of this, but I couldn't find it. But years ago, when our, our, uh, we have a little mini golden doodle. She's usually a micro golden doodle. She's tiny. Uh, but Natalie gave her a haircut. And um, I wish I had a picture. I'll just, I'll text you. Just text me. I'll text you a picture of it. I'll find it later. But it's, you know, you know a mullet? Um, like business in the front, party in the back? It was like a skullet. I don't even know how, it's like literally like skin, like on the top, and then party in the back. It was just the, and just like this puppy golden doodle. It was the weirdest thing. Anyways, I mocked her uh, until last night, because I'm always trying to save money. So we have another dog, a mini uh, Bernie doodle. 
And so I give him a haircut and stuff. Everything was going great until I got to his face. And I don't know what happened, guys. Uh, I don't know if, like, my, so growing up, I had a bowl cut. Any of you guys had bowl cuts growing up? Like, like, literally looked like you took a salad bowl. I don't know what happened, but I kind of gave him a bowl cut. And then Nellie and I were watching a TV show later, and it's, it's like a funny TV show, and the guy had a bowl cut. And Nellie goes, oh, it looks like Walter, our dog Walter. It's like, not cool. It still hurts a little bit, still a too, little too soon. But anyways, fascinating, fascinating. I should pay someone. That's what I learned. I should pay someone to, you know, learn a lesson, right? So anyways, you should always be making mistakes. Fascinating. So Acts 6-7, next one. God's message was preached in ever-widening circles. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and the Jewish priests were converted too. And many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So there's growth, but not anybody who? Priests. These were the last people to convert. Why? Because they're religious leaders in another system. By converting to Christianity, they're giving up everything they've worked for. Right? And we'll see the same pattern when the message of Christ reaches the Gentiles. Here's the big question as we read this passage. Who have we said no for? Who have you said no for? Who are people in your circle of influence that you're going, they would never want to come to church. They would never want to come to small group. They would never want to come to youth group. Why? But the problem is you've never even let them into the conversation. You've just said no for them. And here's what I know. There's a bunch of people in this room that are impossibilities. Aren't you glad the person that talked to you didn't say no for you without inviting you into the conversation? Right? We've spoken for them. Oh, they're too busy. Life is going too good. Oh, they may not feel like they need God. Let me ask you another question. Who's too far for God to reach? Who's too far for God to reach? Whose problems are too big? Answer? No one. No one. And like we said in the last point, man, you don't have to do the heavy lifting. Because I believe if God puts someone on your heart to talk to, God's already working on them. So next verse, Acts chapter 8. It says, a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And just so we were clear, persecution doesn't mean they were like made fun of at the lunch table. All right, this means they're being like, systematically executed, okay? So a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles fled into Judea and Samaria. But the believers who had fled to Jerusalem went everywhere preaching the good news about Jesus. A couple thoughts on these verses. It's happening just as Jesus said, right? The believers are going and they're pushed out of Judea or pushed out into Judea and Samaria to preach the good news. But here's the big question. What got them to be obedient to Jesus' call? Pain. Pain. I'm a firm believer that if everything was comfortable, everything was going up and to the right, they never would have left Jerusalem. For some of us, the reason why it's so hard to be obedient to what God is asking us to do is because we're so dang comfortable. That couch is so nice, right? Some of our, some of our issues aren't sin, it's comfort. And I'm not saying that God brings pain. Trust me, that's not my theology. I don't believe that God brings pain, but I think that God can use pain. I think God can use pain. And I think, I think actually, if you look back at your life and the moments where you learn the most, it was probably through painful moments, wasn't it? So, another thing is this. Look who's being sent. It says that everyone except the disciples, or everyone except the apostles, left. So who's being sent? The lay leaders. The lay leaders. The members of the body the non-pastors, 
the non-trained. Michael Green, theologian, puts it this way. He says that one of the most striking features of, of evangelism in the early days was the people who engaged in it. Communicating the faith was not the preserve of the very zealous or of the officially delegated evangelist. Evangelism was a prerogative and duty of every member. So, let me step on your toes for a moment. Who's got the job? You. You. I'm really glad when you invite people to church and introduce them to me. But you know what? There's nothing special about me. Trust me. Let's hang out for a bit. You'll, you'll realize, yeah, there's really nothing special about talk, actually. Right? <laughs> I'm very well aware of that. God has people in your world that he wants to reach through you. So, next verse. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says, The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it grew in strength and numbers. The believers are walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. There's this word that consistently occurs in the book of Acts. Numbers, numbers. 12 disciples, 120 in the upper room, 3,000 added after the Holy Spirit came. How did they know how many people were in each of these spaces? Like how many, how did they know that over 3,000 people became believers were added to the church on the day of Pentecost? The answer is real simple. Some intern counted. (laughs) Like that was somebody... Like that, it was their job. It was like, one, to stop moving. One, two, the babies count. Sure, they're people. Three, four, you know. Someone counted. Why? Because people matter. Because people matter. There's this idea floating around the church uh, that's like, that sounds really spiritual at first. It's like, hey, we're, we're, we're not in numbers. We're in equality, not quantity. Okay, but let's be clear about something. They're not numbers. I'm not a number. You're not a number, right? We're people. We're people, and people matter. Matter to you, matter to God. If you went on vacation and you came back with one less kid, that'd probably matter, right? It'd be kind of crazy if you came back and said, yeah, talk. I, we had three, sure. We lost one somewhere. Not sure what happened there. But the two we have left, quality. Talk, we're not into numbers, <laughs> right? Come on, don't be into numbers, talk. We're, it's, about, it's about quality, not quantity. And that last one, if we're honest, you know what I mean? Just kidding, right? It's crazy to talk about, isn't it? But then as a church, we are into numbers. We're absolutely into numbers. Because I think God's into numbers too. So here's a question. Who matters to God? Who matters to God? Everyone. Every single person you'll ever meet is someone that Jesus died for. Every single person you'll ever meet is someone that matters to God just as much as you do. Doesn't matter what they look like, doesn't matter how they smell, doesn't matter what, how they voted, doesn't matter what they believe, doesn't matter if they agree with you or if they don't, doesn't matter if they're nice to you or they're not, they matter to God just as much as you do. Next verse, Acts, Acts chapter 13, uh, says this, verse 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for his message, and all who were appointed to eternal life became believers. So in this chapter, we see a shift. Instead of being sent out because of persecution, believers are choosing to go out because, uh, choosing to go out to the ends of the earth. Why? Question is this, what's at stake? What's at stake? In other words, what the heck are we doing here, guys? Right? What are we doing here? Nellie and I didn't want to plant this church because we're like, man, you know what I wish? I wish we could sing Christian karaoke for, you know, 20 minutes every Sunday and set up and tear down and raise a bunch of money so we can do that? We can just rent a karaoke bar and do that. No, what's at stake? Eternity. 
Eternity is at stake. This is why we're all in on this. This is who we are as the church. We're not trying to build the brand of Voice Church. We're trying to reach as many people for Jesus as we can. So if you call Voice Church home, this is what we are about. Communicating the good news of a church. I was just talking to someone the other day. They're like, you realize it's called the good news because in that day, in the first century, it wasn't, the, the gospel was simply news. It was literally news because it just happened. I was like, oh my gosh, that makes, I don't know why I didn't have this epiphany before, but it makes a ton of sense. This is why when Luke wrote the first, well, his gospel, Luke, ironically called, he said, hey, a lot of these people are still alive. In other words, hey, you can go talk to them. He's, he's identifying his sources. This is the good news that Jesus died for us and resurrected. I don't know about you, but I'm going to go with whoever predicts his death and resurrection, and then he does that. I'm just going to go, yeah, whatever he says is probably right, right? So eternity is on the line for everyone. Look, I'm not someone who talks hellfire and brimstone. You will never and will never hear us talk about hellfire and brimstone. This is not a sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of church. I believe it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance, all right? I don't want to scare people into a relationship with him. But the Bible is clear that, that, that eternity is on the line, that we are eternal beings, that when our body wastes away, and some of you guys, like every time you bend over to pick up a pen or something, you, you realize, yeah, my body is wasting away. It's making noises that it never made before, right? Some of you guys who are younger, just wait, just wait. You'll get it, all right? And then you'll, you'll, you'll talk then. But either there's, there's, we're going to spend eternity with God or apart from God. And what we have to offer, let's be clear about this, what we have to offer people is not our intelligence, it's not our creativity, it's not our facilities, it's not our motivational messages. What we have to offer people is not good music. What we have to offer people is an opportunity to live in relationship with God. The reality of his presence, the beautiful gift of his sacrifice on the cross, and the hope of his resurrection, this is what we have to offer people. And I want to be clear, if you've got something better to do, then be a conduit for God with that kind of mission. Please go do that. But eternity is on the line. Eternity is on the line. Last verse for us to look at is, is Acts chapter 28, and I love this part. In your Bible, it's called something like Paul preaches at Rome under guard or something like that. And it says this, for the next few years, Paul lived in his own rented house. He's in prison. He's like in Martha Stewart prison, Okay because he's like a Roman citizen. He's got power and prestige. So he's in prison, kind of, right? Uh, so Paul lived in his own rented house. He welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God with all boldness and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one tried to stop him. It's so interesting. He's put in prison for preaching the gospel, but he's able to preach the gospel in the prison and with no one stopping him. It's just very ironic. So Paul's on house arrest in, in Caesar's palace, the one in Rome, not Vegas. Uh, and there's a guard at all times guarding him, right? And the way it would work uh, is a soldier would chain himself to the prisoner, and when the shift is over, they would change soldiers, and a new, uh, a new guard would be chained to the prisoner. And so how many Roman soldiers do you think heard the gospel? Right? It's so fascinating. In one of the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, uh, ironically called Philippians, uh, or as, my, as our daughter, when she was younger, used to call it Philippians, uh, Philippians uh, chapter 4, uh, he ends the, the book with, with this passage. He says, Give my greetings to all the Christians there. The brothers who are with me here in prison send you their greetings too. And all the other Christians 
send their greetings to, especially those that work in Caesar's palace. So you have this Caesar who thinks he's a god, who imprisons people for preaching about Jesus. Yet all throughout Caesar's palace and in, in the prison are these believers that are following Jesus. How did that happen? How did that happen? Well, you see, there are these guys that were chained to Paul. And see, they thought, they thought Paul was their prisoner. And they had it all wrong. Last question for us. What have I got to lose? What have I got to lose? Answer? Nothing. Nothing. What else in this world is worth giving up everything for? So, voice, you have the baton. See, James, Jesus' half-brother, later would say that our life is but a mist, right? You're like spray just a pump of uh, like water. He says, your life is but a mist, here today, gone tomorrow. That in, from God's perspective, that's us. That's our life. And you know what's so ironic? We get so consumed with going, if I could just upgrade in car, if I could just upgrade in house, if I can just, we, we get obsessed with this micro movements in this fleeting life. And God looks at that as silliness. And one day we will too. And I'm not saying getting a nicer car and a nicer house is wrong. By all means, no. But I'm just saying don't let your life just be about that. Let your life be about something greater than just that small movement, right? So you have the baton. What are you saying with your life? What are you saying is important by, by your life, by how you spend your time, by how you spend your money, by how you spend your talents that God has given you? What are you doing? And what does that say about what you think is important? We as a church family have the mic for a short amount of time. A hundred years from now, no one will know your name. Think about that. Maybe they'll do a 23andMe, and they'll go, oh, my, my great-great-grandpa was named Taka. How cool. Oh, well, on to the next thing. No one will remember your name 100 years from now. So what will they say about us in this fleeting moment that we have that we call life? If the Bible were still being written today, what would we be as a person, as a family, as a church? Would we be someone that they would write about? hope so. I don't know about you, but I'm all in. I'm all in on this. This is why I'm here. I told you we're going to end with the same questions that we started with. First question is this. Are you the church? Yeah, but this, this church let me down. These people let me down. Yes, I'm not minimizing that, but I'm saying, okay, but now let's talk about you. Let's talk about me. Are you the church that you expected the church to be? The kind, the loving, the sacrificial, the generous, the inclusive, the welcoming, the, I mean, all those things that you wish the church could be. Are you the church? The church isn't the, the building never hurt anybody. It was people. So are you the church that you expected the church to be? And then the second question is this. If we are the church, what does God expect of us? What will, we, will we, he hold us responsible for? What will he hold us accountable for? Will he call us faithful? So, I want to pray for us. And then uh, I want you to just pray, a triple dog dare you to pray one prayer. God, what does faithfulness require of me? That's it. God, what does faithfulness require of me? Don't be guilted by a pastor. Don't be guilted by a leader. All right? 
God knows what faithfulness looks like for you in this season. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've told someone with little kids, you probably should serve less now because you have little kids. In this season, your kids need you. When your kids get a little older, you could serve more. If you're, you have a heart for the community, you'd be serving into the community. That means you're serving in, on Sundays less. But what does faithfulness look like for you? Who cares what people think? What does faithfulness look like for you? God will guide you. And then the heart position is, no matter what you say, God, I've already predecided that my answer is yes. That's it. That's it. And then our job as a church, as leaders of the church, is to say, how can we help you? It's not how can you help us. How can we help you be faithful to what God has called you to do? How can we leverage our influence, our resources, platform, anything, Sunday morning experience, to help you be faithful to what God has asked you to do? Because ultimately, we want you to hear Jesus say at the end of your life, well done. Well done. You are faithful. So, let's pray. God, we give our time, every breath we have from this moment to the last, to you. God, we do pray that you build voice. But would you do it for your kingdom, God? Would we not be arrogant? Don't let pride build up in our hearts. Help us understand the responsibility we have as a church representing the values of heaven, that we represent you, Jesus. Would we represent you well? And when the day comes that we pass the baton on to the next generation, will we leave it to them better than we have it? God, would they stand on our shoulders? We thank you for it, God, for, for everyone that's within the influence of this church that don't know you. God, I pray, would you be with them right now? Would you give them the faith, the courage to come to church to experience a life change with you? For anyone in this room that has not made yet, yet made a decision to follow you, God, I pray that they would do that this morning. They'd put their trust and their hope in you and you alone, not in anything of this world least of us ourselves. God, I pray that we put our hope in you. God, give them the courage to walk across that threshold of faith. We love you, God. We give everything to you. We want to be faithful. We want to be the kind of church that you would write about. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? Let's sing this.